Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. The opening hymn that we just sang, Not Made With Hands, was selected purposefully because I want to look at that expression today, not made with hands, in our study in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. I thought about continuing to rush forward to look at the next paragraph, but I want to pause today to consider this intriguing expression, this very unusual clause in the 11th verse of Hebrews chapter 9. For the apostle says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. And you'll see the expression again in the 24th verse of this ninth chapter. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not made with hands. For years I've thought about preaching a sermon from uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. One line in that hymn says, talking about the prince of darkness, who is grim, says, we tremble not for him. It says, one little word shall fell him. thought about preaching on that phrase. One little word will be responsible for defeating. You know, like you fell a building, you bring it to the ground, will fell the devil. One little word will fell him. thought about preaching on that phrase or clause because there are two Greek words in the New Testament that are single words, but yet they are translated by a phrase or an entire sentence in the English. And the first is the expression with which we're all familiar in John 19.30. It is finished. It is finished. That's a single Greek word, one little word. But the reason I haven't preached that sermon is because the two words are not little. (laughs) One little word. They are difficult to pronounce and I try not to uh, speak Greek from the pulpit. I know my audience is English-speaking people. But it's interesting to study original languages. You know, your New Testament was written in Greek. And the original language, the single word, it took several English words to translate it. The word tetelestai, that single word is translated, it is finished in John 19.30, single word. Well, this too, this expression we're looking at today is a single word in the Greek. And it's the word akeropoietos. Akero poetos is the Greek word. That's why I haven't again preached that sermon. To Telestai and Akero poetos. Somebody would say, Preacher, I have no idea what you're t- saying. Let's think of it in English. It's a single word not made with hands. Interestingly, this word means, as it says, made without hand. That is, not manufactured by man. The idea is without human agency. Man did not participate. Man did not cooperate. Man was not the instrument. Without human agency, it speaks of something that has come into existence miraculously and supernaturally. Now our text says again, 
Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, this greater and more perfect tabernacle was not manufactured by man. It was not created by human agency. It came into existence miraculously and supernaturally. And we'll talk about what that is in just a moment, the Lord willing. But this concept of something that man didn't make, but yet it's there, has been picked up in Christian traditions that employ icons and the worship of relics in their worship services. Some of these icons, they say, came into existence supernaturally. And probably the most familiar is the Shroud of Turin. I wonder if you've ever heard of the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is supposedly a holy relic that was laid across the body of Jesus. That is, this is the cloth that covered his body while he was in the tomb. And the idea is that when he was resurrected, that the image of his glorified body projected itself onto the cloth and it is displayed in certain circles and people come from all over the world, you may know, to view it and to say this is something that man didn't create, but it was created supernaturally. I have to admit to you, I have serious doubts about the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin. And there are other holy relics, allegedly, that have been found and advertised as something that God did. One, perhaps, that you may be familiar with is the Veil of Veronica. We're told that a lady named Veronica, when Jesus was on the Via Dolorosa, on the path to the cross, carrying his cross, Veronica came and mopped the sweat from his brow with her handkerchief or a cloth, and Later, she found that it had the image of his face. And this, of course, has been protected in a monastery somewhere. And it is often viewed by pilgrims throughout the world. And they come to see it. And they say that it has healed people by laying the veil of Veronica. This is the same word, not made with hands. That is something that came into existence supernaturally. And another is the uh, Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico, 1531, I think. That's a long time after the time of Christ. But apparently Mary made an appearance. The Virgin Mother made an appearance. And there's a beautiful picture, an artistic expression. And they say no man painted it, but this is a supernatural relic that God gave, not made with hands. All of these use that word, akeropoitos. They use this idea that it was not manufactured by human intervention. Now, I, again, seriously doubt that any of these things are authentic. You may take issue with me on that, but the reason that I doubt it is because there's no evidence in Scripture for the Shroud of Turin, or for the Veil of Veronica, or for the Virgin of Guadalupe. Our faith is taken from the Word of God. We are not worshipers of relics or of icons, pictures, and we don't need these visual aids because we have the full and final revelation of God. He's given us the scriptures which contain all things that pertain unto life and godliness. The Bible is sufficient. I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. It's a thorough furniture unto every good work. 
We worship Him not by sight, do we? We worship Him by faith, right? So we hear the truth and we worship Him. We don't have to see images, relics, icons, because that can easily develop into an idol. You know, it can lead to idolatry very quickly, and we see that it has in many places. You know, even the children of Israel took the holy Ark of the Covenant, which contained the tables of Moses' law and Aaron's rod that budded and the golden pot of manna. They took the Ark of the Covenant and they began to think that it was God. Now, of course, it was a symbol of God's presence. But when the Philistines stole the Ark, they said, the Lord has departed from us. <laughs> the Lord hadn't departed. The Ark was gone, but God was still there. They said, let's fetch the ark that when it comes among us, it may save us. I'm telling you, my friends, an it won't save you. A he will save you. Only the Lord is our deliverer. So there's a tendency in all of us to worship something that perhaps somebody says, Jesus touched this. We don't know for sure if he did or not. But there are whole religions that, of course, use these items to try to you know, draw people and keep people perhaps I should say, in their good graces. But let's look at the biblical references this morning to this expression, not made with hands, and there are several of them. Several times in the Bible, this expression, which is again a single word in the Greek, a word that is long enough, and I'm not skilled enough in pronunciation to say it too many times in the course of this sermon, but yet uh, it's a single word in the Greek, but yet this expression actually goes back to the Old Testament. The basis of it, not made with hands, the first time it's used in the Bible, as far as I can tell, is in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, and I want to turn back now and read this passage. Daniel 2.34 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Do you remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and not only did it trouble him, but he forgot the details of the dream. So he called his magicians, and his wise men around him, and he said, I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then what it means. And they said, O king, no one in history has ever made such a request. He said, if you can't tell me, then you'll, you're to be killed. And they said, this is an unreasonable request. There's nobody who could tell you what you dreamed. If you'll tell us what you dreamed, we'll tell you what it means, but we can't tell you what you dreamed and then the meaning of it too. Daniel, who was... One of the Jews in Babylon heard about the king's dream and he came to the king and he said, O king, the Lord will reveal the dream. And Daniel then told the king what he dreamed. And what he had dreamed is he saw a huge colossal image. And you may remember it had a head of gold, it had arms and a breast of silver, it had a belly and thighs that consisted of brass and then legs of iron and feet, part of iron and part of clay. So this was like a huge statue. And Daniel tells the king what he dreamed. And the king said, that's right. That's exactly what I dreamed. And then he asks, what does it mean? And Daniel explains the dream in Daniel chapter 2. It says the image's head was of fine gold. Now notice there's a composite of metals in this image. The head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. And what this means is that this image speaks of four world empires, four 
political powers that ruled the world. And the first was the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. Thou, O king, art the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And the Babylonian Empire had massive sway. They had great power and they were very wealthy. They were like the head of gold. Notice how the metals decrease in value as you go down. Gold, silver, brass, iron, and then feet of iron and clay. Now, by the way, if you have a head of gold, a torso of silver, legs of iron, and feet, part of iron and part of clay, what is the weakest part of this anatomy? The feet, right? Because clay and iron, they don't naturally go together, you know. I mean, if you have feet of iron, you know, here's one metatarsal that's made of iron, and here's the next one beside it that's made of clay, obviously it's going to be weak. So you've got four world empires, and by the way, there have been four political empires that have ruled the world in human history. The Babylonians, and that's the head of gold. After them was the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, and this was in what we would call in modern day terms the Middle East. The Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. You remember when Cyrus rose up and he conquered Belteshazzar? You remember Belteshazzar was uh, having his party and he saw the handwriting on the wall? You remember that story? Mene, mene, tikel, eupharzen, which means thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And another shall come and take your kingdom. And while the wine was in his mouth, during his party, the Medo-Persians invaded and they conquered Babylon. So now they take power. That's the torso of silver. After them was the Grecian Empire ruled by Alexander the Great. And you probably have studied Alexander the Great and the way that the Greek Empire invaded and actually took over the entire Mediterranean world. And that's why we have Western influence today, by the way. The West rose to power. Europe and America, it all has its roots in the rise of Alexander the Great and the spread of Greek influence in the ancient world. And then after the Greeks, the Roman Empire ruled the world. And Rome conquered most every country on planet Earth. Now, most of these world empires were right there centered in what we would call the Middle East. But Rome spread its power in many distant lands, and the Roman Empire was the most glorious and the most pervasive of any political power in history. But notice what it says after he interprets this dream. O king, this is the interpretation thereof. He says this in verse 34, Thou sawest till a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. That's the first appearance of this expression in the Bible, which smote the image on his feet. So here's a little rock, a little stone that was taken out of the mountain, but it was taken out supernaturally, cut out of the mountain without hands. This little stone, he says, smote this big colossal image of man's political power on his feet. And what happened? It toppled the entire Colossus so that it broke in pieces and it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away till there was no place found for them. And you might ask, Brother Mike, what is this stone that is taken out of the mountain but man didn't do it? Man didn't chisel it out? Man didn't carve it out? 
but it was taken out miraculously and it toppled secular powers. What is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. For he goes on to explain in verse 44, in the days of these kings, in the days of the Roman Empire, who was in power when Jesus was born? You remember? Caesar. The Romans ruled the world. In fact, they had even occupied Judea. And the Jews were having to pay taxes to Caesar and they despised it. You know, they were under the thumb of Rome. It was in the days of these kings that the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now I want to tell you, in contrast to the empires of men, the kingdom of God, my friends, will last forever. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina will last forever, but I'm telling you, God will have a witness somewhere in this world. You know, many of the original churches, the church at Ephesus that we read about in the New Testament, the church at Philippi, the church at uh, Colossae, many of these churches are no longer extant. They have ceased to exist a long time ago. But the kingdom of God will be somewhere in this world when Jesus comes again. And in fact, it will translate into the triumphant kingdom. The visible militant kingdom of God will become the triumphant redeemed throng in heaven. That is, my beloved, we'll do in heaven what we're doing down here, which is praising the Lord, honoring his name, celebrating the Lamb of God that was slain and who lives again. Heaven will be an everlasting worship service. And maybe some of you young people here today are like my kids when they were little who said, uh, you mean we're going to go to church in heaven, Dad? That'll be boring. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I understand what you're saying. I'm telling you, my friends, you will be anything but bored when you get to heaven. You will not be tired. You will not be distracted. You will not become weary of it. In heaven, you will be perpetually mesmerized with the breathtaking spectacle of the Lamb that was slain. The glories of that place will be far beyond anything that you can ask or imagine right now. But the days of the Roman Empire were days in which the Lord set up a kingdom. You see, here's His political organization. His nation. It's a holy nation. It's a royal priesthood. God is going to set up His kingdom. Now, who's the king of God's kingdom? the Lord. That's why it's His kingdom. He, Jesus Christ is the King, and He reigns over His kingdom. And you see, what we are doing here this morning is we are investing time and effort into the kingdom of God, aren't we? We're thinking about Him. We're not trying to labor for man. We're laboring for something that is beyond things that man's hands have anything to do with. We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about supernatural things. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Isn't it wonderful to be a part of an organization that will never cease to exist? Even the most powerful corporations in history have been replaced by new businesses that have risen and taken their place. I think IBM's still around, and uh, no doubt they are, and probably still financially solvent in many respects, but they're not nearly as popular as they once were. I mean, Microsoft and Google and some of these new businesses have taken the place of prominence. Xerox Corporation, they're probably still around, I don't know, but uh, I dare say I don't hear a lot about them. 
anymore. There was a time when every copier, photocopier, was called a Xerox machine, even if it was made by brother or Epson or somebody else, you know. They'd say, would you Xerox this paper? And you'd go Xerox, but that wasn't a Xerox. But you see, they were so dominant, their name became attached to photocopying. But you know, you don't hear much about them anymore, no offense intended. If you're a fan of IBM or Xerox, I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm just saying that, you know, the most powerful companies come and go. I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is always relevant. It's perpetual in its message. It is an ongoing kind of work and service. It will never be destroyed, neither shall it be left to other people. It will never be conquered. Now, the Greek Empire was conquered by the Romans. The um, Medo-Persian Empire is conquered by the Greeks. The Babylonian by the Medo-Persians. But the kingdom of God will never be taken over by another power. But it shall break in pieces. That is, it's going to begin small, like a little stone. But the pieces of it are going to be disseminated in many outlying areas. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And you say, Brother Mike, it doesn't look like the church is taking over the world very well yet. It's not consuming all these kingdoms. Well, I'm telling you, dear friends, when the king comes back, every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. And every time a person is added to the cause of Christ, every time a person is baptized and unites with the church, one more of the Lord's children has been taken out of the world's kingdoms to profess submission to King Jesus, to the authority of our Savior Christ. We're gaining ground. We're gaining ground. Onward then, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. We have, you know, a task before us. We represent our king. And the kingdom of God is the cause of Christ. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the work of his gospel. That's what we're talking about. And my beloved, it's more important than the work that is going on anywhere out here in the secular world around us because this is a kingdom made without hands. Not made with hands. Okay, let's move forward and look at another reference of this expression in the Bible. Acts chapter 7, verse 48. Here we have Stephen's sermon right before he was stoned to death. I mean, they got so upset at what he said that they picked up boulders and threw them at his body, and he became the first martyr, the first Christian martyr in the early church. But during the course of his sermon, Stephen said this, Solomon built, verse 47, the Lord a house. Now you know that story, don't you? David wanted to build God a permanent structure, but God wouldn't allow David to do that. But he said, your son will do it. Solomon built the Lord a, a house. And Solomon's temple was a very grandiose and majestic thing. It was elaborate. It was glorious. It was a wonder of the ancient world. Howbeit, Stephen says, though Solomon built him a house, listen to this, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Now that's a quotation from Isaiah 66, verse 1. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? God made everything that exists, but God says the one who made it is greater than than the physical world. Yes, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. What does he prop his feet up on? God props his feet up on planet earth. <laughs> it's not that we can contain him, in other words. Now, interestingly, Paul uses the same thought in Acts 17. 
We're in Acts 7. Stephen's sermon, listen to what Paul says at Mars Hill. Stephen is preaching to Jews. They would have understood who the true God was. Paul is preaching to Gentiles or Greeks at the mall in Athens. It's called Mars Hill, and this was the Areopagus, a place where there were many statues, idols. The Greek pantheon was represented there. It was a very religious place. The intellectuals gathered to debate. It was like a public square, a public space where they exchanged ideas. And they gathered to hear some new thing. That is, they wanted to hear something novel and sensational. And Paul was just the man for the task because he came preaching a message that they had not expected. He said uh, when he stood up in the midst of these intellectuals and academics of his day, Paul said, men, I perceive that you're very superstitious. And of course, he means that you are really interested in religious topics. But he said, I beheld one statue that had this inscription on it to the unknown God. And of course, they probably had a statue to Zeus and to Artemis and to Venus, Neptune, and to all of these different gods and goddesses in the pantheon. But Paul says, lest you leave one out, you had one statue and you inscribed it to the unknown god. You know, they wanted to have sort of a catch-all. They wanted to make sure that they didn't offend any gods unnecessarily, so they erected a statue to one that, like the tomb of the unknown soldier, you know, they said, this is to the unknown god. Paul says, that's the one I want to talk to you about. He says, God that made the heavens and the earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. I love that expression. I want to ask you today, my friend, does God need anything? <laughs> now, let me ask you, do you need anything? You <laughs> say, absolutely. I need air. If you've lived with respiratory illness like I have through the years, then you probably need more air than you're getting. I need air. You say, I need food. How long could you exist without food? I need it every day, several times a day. It's one of my favorite things about life. I need water. I need a lot more than I get. Most people, probably 95% of Americans, are severely dehydrated, and they don't even realize it. So I need water. I need companionship. I'm a social being. I need friends. I need family. I need other people. I need a lot of things, but God doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. That is, in and of himself, God has the resources necessary to keep himself going without any external stimulus, any external inputs. God does not need anything, and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And somebody says, well, he told Moses to build a tabernacle and Solomon a temple. And he said, I will dwell there. Yes, but the idea is that you can't contain him there. You can't put him in a box and shut him in to where he can't get out. It's not that he's in one place and one place only. The Bible teaches that God is everywhere present and nowhere absent. He's omnipresent. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Do not I fill, F-I-L-L, heaven and earth. And he's not far from every one of us. So Stephen in Acts 7, Paul at Mars Hill in Acts 17, both are talking about a God who cannot be contained in a structure that man has built. For he is everywhere simultaneously. You say, you mean he's in France? Absolutely. In fact, he's on planet whatever its name is that some scientist named that was just recently discovered. He's there. He's here. He's in your home. He's in this church. 
He's not far from every one of us, right? And you can't contain God in your little box. He's a great God. I'm so glad I get to preach a great God. <laughs> can't think of anything worse. In fact, if I had to preach a God who's trying and wishing that man would help him, just wringing his hands in despair, I think I'd quit preaching and go to selling used cars and making an honest living. I'm so glad I can preach about a God who is great, who's powerful, who's omnipresent and omniscient. So this phrase is used to describe the dwelling place of God. He dwells in the heavens and the earth is his footstool and he is ubiquitous is the technical term which means he's everywhere simultaneous. This expression is used again in our text and I'll have to hit these quickly to speak of the human body of Jesus. Hebrews 9.11 is the text we took. Christ being come a high priest. Now he's contrasting in our text the external service of the law service, the tabernacle worship. We've been preaching about that recently. And he's saying all of that was preparatory. All of that was figurative. All of that pointed forward to something that was coming. Good things were coming. And he says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come. Christ came, watch this. And he came, it says, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, God manifested His presence in the Old Testament tabernacle, didn't He? God came down in the form of the cloud, the Shekinah glory, and the priest could go in and meet with God with blood. He could go in, but God couldn't be contained there, but that's a physical locality where God promised to manifest His presence. You say, oh, what a glorious place. God's there. I can go and meet God. Well, the priest can go in my place. But listen to this. When Jesus came, He came with a greater and more perfect tabernacle than that Old Testament tabernacle. God was here perfectly. Right? In the body of Jesus. This phrase, not made with hands, it says a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, means that the body of Jesus was the dwelling place of God. The man Christ Jesus, my beloved, was more than a man. This is an expression that speaks of the divine nature or the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ? The divine nature of Jesus, that He is God of very God. You say, well, he was a man. I mean, historians know that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived on this earth. He was a man. But you see, even his body was supernatural. And it was a real human body. I mean, it was physical. He had limbs, bones, a skeletal system, a respiratory system, a central nervous system. He had a digestive system. He had all of the parts that you and I have as human beings. But my friends, that body was not fathered by any human being, the Holy Ghost came upon Mary. You remember? And Jesus was virgin born. This tabernacle, this tent that he lived in, in his body, was not made with hands. Now, my tent, and by the way, that's what our bodies are, right? Our bodies are not palatial palaces, you know, made of marble and granite. Our bodies are like Coleman pup tents. Right? And what happens to a tent? You pull up stakes and you fold it up and you tear it down after a while, right? You don't live in a tent permanently. And this body 
is called an earthly tabernacle in 2 Corinthians 5.1. We'll go there in just a minute. The body, my friends, is just a tent. Jesus came and John 1.14 says, dwelt among us. And if you look in the margin of a good King James Bible, it'll say tabernacled. He came in a tent, his body. But you know, the tent, the tabernacle he lived for 33 years in was not made with hands. Now my tabernacle was, my tent was made by a father and a mother. Jesus had an earthly mother. But may I say, the seed was conceived in her of the Holy Ghost, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Virgin born so that he escaped the sin nature that passed down from Adam. Jesus, though he was fully human, yet he was not a sinful human. And you say, is that possible to be human without being sinful? Well, Adam was a human in the first creation. When God made Adam, he was thoroughly human, but he wasn't a sinner yet until he transgressed God's law. Jesus is the second Adam. May I say he was impeccable? He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, though he had a physical body, but that body was not made with hands. Okay, so we've talked about the dwelling place of God, not made with hands. The human body of Jesus, even the resurrected body of Jesus. Let's hit these quickly. Mark 14, 58 says it like this. We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. They thought he was going to launch some kind of revolution to demolish the physical structure of Herod's temple. And they are trying to accuse Jesus of being a revolutionary. They said, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple. But they understood not that he spake to them of the temple of his body. I'll build another made without hands. He's talking about his resurrected body. You know when Jesus came out of the grave that he had a physical body even then, but it was glorified. He told the disciples, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Put your finger in the nail print. Thrust your hand into my side, Thomas, he said in John 20. The body of Jesus was real after the resurrection. My beloved, it was a supernatural body, right? In other words, it was glorified. It was miraculous. It's a miraculous thing that anybody had come back from death. I mean, when does that happen? Jesus did. He was resurrected. He's alive today. And my friends, He is still in heaven. Our man in heaven. There's one mediator between God and me and the man Christ Jesus. He's still making intercession for us. And He is in a glorified body. And one day our bodies will be changed miraculously. It'll still be you. It'll still be me. And it'll be my body. But yet it's going to be changed. You know, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, it is sown in corruption. And it is raised, the same body, it. The same body that's sown is raised in incorruption. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a mortal body. It is raised an immortal body. He says, we shall all be changed. You know, my great change is coming. And I'll tell you, I am going to be glorious in heaven. And you will too. You can't, and I can't even begin to imagine what it will be like. But it'll be you. Job said, I will see him for myself and not another. Job believed in the personal identity of the saints in heaven. I do too. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Moses was still Moses. Elijah was still Elijah, right? And the disciples saw them talking to each other. So they're communicating. We'll get to talk with people.
Can you imagine meeting Moses? <laughs> David, King David, the Apostle Paul. You say, I want to see my mother, my father, grandma, granddaddy. I want to see my wife, my husband that's gone on before me, my child. You'll get to do all of that. But my friends, it'll even be more pure and perfect than you can imagine. And you won't have the same attachments up there that you have here. In other words, you won't love them any more than you love a perfect stranger that lived on another continent that was a child of God. But it'll be a perfect, pure time of happiness. I do want to sit by Sister Lori in heaven, though. Okay, so y'all make sure, if anybody asks, that I get to sit by her. But uh, anyway, I'm saying, my beloved, that heaven will be a glorious place. And that leads us to the next thought, Hebrews 9.24 where it says Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. So he's our high priest, but he's not going into an earthly tent or temple. But he's entered into heaven itself, a place made without hands. This phrase is used in the Bible to speak of the dwelling place of God, the human body of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus, and heaven itself, where Jesus Christ has now entered. Is heaven just a state of mind no, it's a place. It's a real place. Hell is a real place. Luke 16, the rich man in hell said, I am tormented in this place. He didn't say I'm tormented in this state of mind. I'm, it's a place. It's a geographical location. Heaven, my friends, is geography. <laughs> and you and I will be in a real place. When our loved ones pass on, they still exist. They're in a real place. You say, I can't imagine. I can't really wrap my mind around it. That's because we live in a world that's made with hands. I mean, everything around us seems that it's manufactured by man and it's hard to conceive of something that is supernatural, but yet still real, still real. Heaven is a real place and Jesus is there right now. The word heaven literally means sky in the Bible. So somewhere beyond the clouds, beyond the sunset, as the poet says in our hymn book. Far beyond this closed system that is the present universe that God made and created. It's not eternal. God made it and He sustains it. But somewhere beyond it, the Lord is real. The disembodied souls of the saints are there. They're real. And that leads us to 2 Corinthians 5.1. 2 Corinthians 5.1. That's the next reference. For we know says Paul, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, when our tent starts being taken down. Now, I've had a tough week physically this week. Had some health issues, and uh, even this morning, my fingers spontaneously began to pull, you know, carpal tunnel, I guess. I never, never have had it in my life, but my body starts breaking down. Yours has done that, hasn't it? Any of you have any aches and pains or things that don't work like they used to? <laughs> <laughs> that's a rhetorical question and uh, it happens doesn't it you know I'm saying I'm going to need to correct my diet need to exercise more need to be a little more focused on taking care of myself it happens as we get older we try to keep the boat patched and keep it afloat as long as we can but our earthly house of this tabernacle is being disassembled and when it finally is the last tent peg is taken out and we pass on, we die, right? But we know, Christians know, that when our earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, 
eternal in the heavens. And in this we groan, being burdened, to be clothed upon. Now this is not a groaning of complaint. It's a sigh of longing. We groan so that we might be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. Now Paul does not presume to know that he knows that he knows that he's saved. But he has a blessed assurance. He says, uh, I know that I may be deceived, that I may not be one of God's. But he says, unless I'm deceived, he said, I'm looking forward to my heavenly home. Heaven, my beloved, is the soul's eternal home. Now, where is your soul at home right now in this tent? God has given you a tent. He is the landlord and he's leased it to us. You know, we're to pay rent on it. Now, I lived in my tent a long time before I started paying rent, like he deserves. And uh, he started to get my attention, send me letters. You know, a landlord does that when the tenant's not paying his rent. He sends letters out and says, uh, you need to come worship me. How do you pay your rent for the home of your soul that you're living in right now? By gratitude, by worship, by praise, by honoring Jesus Christ in church and with your behavior in this world. But my beloved, one day I'm going to die. And unless Jesus comes back one day, you will too. And I, it's hard to think about, but it's a reality, right? One thing I love about old Baptists, they face reality. Our bodies are getting older, they're breaking down. One day we're going to be laid in the dust. But I'm telling you, that's not the end of the story. We know that when that happens, we have a home of the soul. The soul's home forever will be in the presence of God in heaven. A house not made with hands. And I've said all of this for, to make these last two points. This phrase is used in Daniel 8.25, not made with hands, to speak of the defeat of the Antichrist. Let me just read the verse. The defeat of the Antichrist. It says the Antichrist in the latter day will be a king of fierce countenance, and understanding dark sentences, that is, he'll be involved in the mystery religions. And his power shall be mighty, not by his own power, it says. That is, he'll be actuated by the devil, the Antichrist. And he shall destroy wonderfully. I mean, he's going to make havoc of civilization and freedom. And shall prosper. He's going to look like he's going to get away with it. And practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He's going to persecute the church. And through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. The same problem that the original devil had, pride, is going to be evident in the Antichrist. And by peace he shall destroy many, and he shall also stand up, watch this, against the Prince of Princes, capital P, the Prince of Princes, that's a reference to the Messiah. He's going to try to overthrow Christ, the Messiah. That's why he's called Antichrist but he shall be broken without hand. I'm telling you, dear friends, that the devil will be defeated one day, but it's not going, he's not going to be defeated by Parliament or by Washington, D.C. or by the powers that be, by militaries on this planet. He's not going to be defeated by you or me. He'll be defeated by the Lord Himself. The Lord's going to judge Him finally. His defeat will be supernatural. I've said all of this to take you to Colossians 2.11. Where the Apostle says, as he talks about the work of grace in the soul, and I love this verse, you are complete in Christ. You are. 
You're fully adequate and sufficient in Christ. He's our everything, isn't he? You are complete in Christ, which is the head of all principality and power. He's sovereign over all, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You say, what is that talking about? It's talking about the work of the new birth, regeneration, when you're born again, when God does a work of grace in your heart, my friends. He does, as it were, an operation, like the ancient operation of circumcision, which was the seal of the old covenant. God puts his seal of the everlasting covenant in the hearts of his people, and he does it. It's a circumcision made without hands. No doctor does this. No priest performs this rite or ritual. This is a work. The work of grace in the soul is a work of supernatural grace. It's a work of miraculous grace. God does it. And what I'm saying is salvation is of the Lord. You were saved not by anything you did or any other man did. You were saved by God and God alone, right? Not made with hands. Just as the physical body of Jesus was miraculously conceived, and supernaturally raised from the dead. And just as our eternal home is in a place not manufactured by man, and just as the devil will be defeated apart from man's efforts to orchestrate his demise, so the salvation of the sinner is something that takes place miraculously, supernaturally, without human agency, not made with hands. All right.